Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. Today, we are recording episode 28. I'm very grateful to have another guest for A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host, and my book, A Gift from Adversity, is the reason why I am doing this show. My book, A Gift from Adversity, came out in 2020, and the subtitle is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. After I published my book, and this is my story, I had a lot of people come talk to me about their experience of their adversity, and I felt very compelled to share about adversity and then tools that came from it, and then the gift that um, stemmed out from the adversity. So we have a great guest tonight. Her name is Helen Ryan, and Helen is from California, and I'm in Massachusetts. So I'm very grateful to have her tonight. So Helen, welcome to A Gift from Adversity. Thank you so much for being here. Well, thank you for having me on. Helen, can you please tell us who you are and what you do? Yes, well, I do a couple of different things. Um, I run a digital marketing agency with my now grown son. And I also have a walking podcast where I coach people to walk and we talk about different subjects like motivation, inspiration, and that kind of thing. Great. So do you have any website or social media people can check out and follow? Sure. Uh, Walkingandtalking.show. That's the podcast. And Instagram is real Helen M. Ryan. Walking and talking that show. Yeah. Okay. Great. And then your Instagram? Real Helen M. Ryan. Real Helen M. Ryan. Okay, got it. So as I speak, there's a comment box that you can um, ask ask any questions, ask Helen any questions. So let's get started. So can you tell our audience, uh, what was your adversity? It was a very difficult childhood. It started when I was probably about seven or so and pretty much went until I ran away from home at 17. It was it was uh, really, really challenging. When I was, I think about seven years old, almost eight, my uh, mother ended up going back to Norway where she was from. And I lived for about three months with a relative, my sister and I did. And there I was sexually abused by someone else who lived in the house. And then after three months, we, my sister and I were both sent to Norway to live with my grandmother. My, um, my mother was in a, what they call back then a nerve clinic. It was, you know, like a, like a place where you know, they could probably more like a rehab center. I didn't know that she had a drinking problem. I don't think very many people knew about back then. And we lived with my grandmother for about a year. And then when we went where we had a choice at that point to go live with our mother or to go live in a foster home, my sister elected, she was five years older than me. She elected to go live in a foster home. And I was eight at the time. And I just elected to go live with my mother because that's what little kids want to do. They want to be with their mom. So, excuse me. So I did. My sister ended up in a really good foster home in the small city where my grandmother lived and where we lived with her. 
and then I I moved in with my mom and I didn't know that she was drinking because I was you know little at the time I was about eight and then I remember the first Christmas that we were there my sister came up and we were having Christmas with my mom but she was upstairs throwing up because she was so drunk and my sister and I were sitting in our robes in front of the Christmas tree just like okay we're like eight and 14 and like okay well this this is you know we didn't know like it was so different from our lives before so we didn't really know you know what was happening so little by little um my sister of course you know stayed and and with her foster family and i lived with my mother and things got worse she had a she had probably several but she had undiagnosed at the time mental illness and she was um well, later on, it was diagnosed as borderline personality disorder, and there were some other issues as well, aside from being an alcoholic. She was also very promiscuous, so I had to deal with that growing up as well. We lived in an apartment, and you know, she would bring strange men home. Like She would take a taxi ride home, and then suddenly the taxi driver would be upstairs, and they'd be having relations. I don't know if I can say sex, but they, were, they would like randomly. She would have sex with everybody, anybody. My boss, when I was 14, I was... Um, I had a cleaning job after school. I was cleaning offices and staircases, and she had sex with my boss. I mean, it was like anybody, anybody, anytime, like, you know, doesn't matter if I was there. So she was uh, very, very difficult to live with. When I was 14 was the first time she tried to commit suicide, and that was the first and second time were the ones that were most impactful for me. You know, later on, by the time I left at 17, she had tried to commit suicide about 12 times. So obviously she didn't want to die. It was just a, another call for attention because that's, she just liked attention, wanted attention, wanted to be the victim all the time because she, you know, she was mentally ill and none of us knew it back then really because it wasn't really talked about back then in those days. So the first time she tried to commit suicide, it was in the middle of the night. And my mouth gets dry. <laughs> and then she came to wake me up in the middle of the night and I, I didn't know what was going on. I also didn't have glasses or contact lenses so I really couldn't see that great so she woke me up and I came into the kitchen and then she said well he wants to know it's tr if it's true and she was talking about her boyfriend and I'm like what so she handed me the phone and he's like is it true is it true and I'm like well, and then I look and I saw blood all over the kitchen floor all over the phone cord you know because we had the old phones where you actually plug them into the wall and it was everywhere there was just blood everywhere and I panicked because I didn't know what to do so then I hung up with him and I, I put her hand under her wrist under the faucet, which, you know, I don't know, probably wouldn't have helped, but I didn't know I was, you know, 14. So then um, I called the emergency services and they said, we've already had two phone calls, which meant that she called first to make sure that they would come. And then her boyfriend called after she called him and then I called. So then they came and they took her away to, um, to the emergency department and then I was all alone. It was the middle of the night. There was blood all over the kitchen. I was 14. So I didn't know what to do. I closed the door to the kitchen. I went in my room with my cats and I just laid there and eventually I fell asleep. The next morning I woke up and I'm thinking, okay, do I have a mother? Is she dead? Is she, is she alive? What's going on? So I call my mother's boyfriend and he says, she's here. This is all your fault. And then he hung up the phone. I was like, uh, okay. So I had to clean up the blood because it was like, you know, coagulating and it was like, all over the floor and nobody was going to do it. It was only me. So I cleaned up the blood and then I went on with my day because I didn't have anybody and I was all alone. So that was the first like example of like something really, really like impactful in my life. She did it again and again and again. But the second time was with 
um, I had come home from school and there was a note and the house by the phone and the house was clean. I'm like, why is the house clean? The house is never clean because she, I guess she decided she was going to take an overdose. So when I went, I saw the suicide note and I went into her room and she was laying there in bed with a tiny, tiny little pink negligee with no underpants on. So then of course I called emergency services again and they came and got her. And I just remember feeling so embarrassed. They were like trying to carry her out and her whole bottom part was all hanging out and she was wearing this tiny negligee and I was just so horrified. And luckily my childhood friend came over and so she rode with me to the ambulance when the ambulance and we went to you know to the hospital. But after that I think I just stopped going to the hospital because it kept happening over and over again and it was like there's nothing I can do and I, I there was there was no, no way I can I could do anything or handle it or help her in any way. So those that was it was a constant and it was a constant of men coming in she would bring men in and get drunk and then she'd fall asleep and then they would come into my room but I wasn't you know I wasn't going to have any of that so I I just had to always deal with like pushing you know pushing strange men out the door and I I had my childhood friend and she was really strong and she would she would stay over sometimes and they would come in she'd help me kick them right out this right out because it was like, it was so unsafe. And so I've always had trouble sleeping because nighttime has never been safe. So that was a, a constant until I was about 17 years old and finally I couldn't take it anymore and I ran away and I came back to the US. Wow. Thank you so much for sharing that with our audience and uh, on the show, it, it's a lot to take in. And I, as I was listening, to you that the magnitude of impact as growing up as a child, like witnessing all of these things and, you know, how, how did it affect you now looking back up to 17? Like, how do you think this adversity affected you? Well, I think it shut me down a lot. I didn't realize until years later that I had PTSD because, you know, it, it wasn't anything that people talked about back then. And it was like, well, only military veterans get PTSD. But down the road, I realized that I was, I just shut everything down. There was no, there was no emotion. I was just going through the motions, going through the day because there was nothing to feel. There was nothing to do. What could I do? I, I was in a terrible situation. I was lucky that I did have an aunt in Norway. So when things got really bad, I would go to her like on the weekends and things like that. So that gave me and my cousins, I was very close to my cousins. So I, at least I could get away. I never talked to anybody about it. I never really told things about it. And people just, you know, because there wasn't anybody else there except for my aunt and, and her kids, my cousins. And it was, it was difficult. But I think that year that I lived with my grandmother when I was was eight, my grandmother was very strict. And I had to walk, I feel like I'm, I'm saying these stories, like I had to walk uphill in the snow both ways. But I had to walk really far to school in the mornings, it was dark, I was terrified, I had to go through the forest, because she lived in the forest, hold my little flashlight. You know, I was like, and and having to go down into the scary basement, I think that year living with my grandmother taught me to be stronger. I think without that year, it would have been a lot more difficult because my grandmother taught me there's no such thing as fear. You have to conquer your fear. Doesn't matter if you're scared, you still have to walk through the forest at night. I mean, not at night, in the dark, because it doesn't get light in Norway. It's, it's dark in the winter, you know, most just few hours of light. 
And so I really think that helped make me stronger and get over fear. I think she helped me with that. Wow. And then um, when, when did you realize that after you left or prior to maybe you leaving your mom, when did you realize it's not normal that you are experiencing? I think I pretty much knew from the beginning when my sister and I were sitting there that Christmas in our robes and she was throwing up upstairs and that was the extent of our Christmas. I knew at that point because Christmases before that had not been like that. So I knew at that point that there was something wrong. And I, I knew intrinsically that, you know, other mothers didn't have all these men coming over all the time. And, you know, I knew that was and that the drinking and the throwing up and I had to call her out from work. And I just, but I'm one of those helpy helper ton people, you know, like, uh, I like to help people. I like to do things for people. So I was always trying to help her. I was always trying to help her get better. I was calling in for work for her. I was, I would, every day when I got my little paycheck, I would, every page period, I would buy her flowers, even though, you know, it wouldn't help anything. But I was just always trying to be a good person and a good kid. And I knew that that just wasn't a normal life that other people were going through. Wow. And then after 17, like after you left your mom, what happened? Well, my aunt, who I had been close to in Norway, moved back to the U.S. She's from the United States, and she lived in Texas. I lived with her for three months, got a job working in the U.S. just to get... In Norway, we have a different alphabet with extra letters. So I had to learn how to type on an American keyboard. So I was practicing all of that while I was working other jobs in Texas. And then I came to California, back to California, where I was born, where my dad was. I lived with him for a while till eventually I, I got a good job and I moved out of his house and in with a roommate on my own. So... First of all, I'm very sorry that you went through all this adversity. And just to let our audience know, when Helen said sexual abuse, that word alone, people do not understand the significance of it unless otherwise, unfortunately, you experienced it. And to me, the sexual abuse played the biggest role in terms of adversity uh, compared comparing to DV, like bullying or homelessness, that was significant, but at the same time, sexual abuse was the worst, I would say, of all. I know you have experienced many, like how did sexual abuse part played in your life and then how, um, how much of weight or effect that gave you or impacted you in your life? The sexual abuse was, in terms of actually being abused, was a shorter period of time. And I was young. I was eight years old. It wasn't, it was impactful. It impacted my relationships in the future, but it didn't impact my life as much as the, the seven, was seven year, 10 year, 12 year, whatever, however many, I can't, <laughs> I can't do math, as many years as just living with someone who was so mentally ill. Um, and, and luckily I was, when the people who were coming in and out of the house, they were pretty much drunk as well. And so they, yeah, I could put up a fight and push people away and push, push them off, or it could have been very bad. There was something inside of me. Usually I'm a people pleaser, but at that point I'm like, do not come near me because I wasn't interested in, in any of that. And, and so that, 
always having to fend off strange men because she would get drunk, pass out, and then I would have to kick them out of the house. That would that made my nights unsafe. And there's still I still don't sleep well. I'm 50, I'm going to be 56 in a week and a half, and I still don't sleep well. Helen, I just wanted to um, relate to you. So this happened in Norway. Uh, the the abuse happened here, and then I went to Norway, and then all that happened when I was in Norway. Okay. And back then in Norway, there wasn't so much of advocacy or mental health talked about. No, and I don't think it was much anywhere, because really, what was that in the, the 80s? Um, or late, so where I went to Norway, I think in 75, I can't remember, but, and through the 80s, but it wasn't really recognized as much. And and they were very, like in California, we're very liberal in terms of, and I'm liberal, in terms of letting people out, you know, mental health. But in Norway, they're even more so. They could not ever commit her. If she was in the U.S. and she tried to commit suicide over and over again, they would do what we call a 5150, which is a hold for mental health evaluation for 72 hours. They don't, they don't do that in Norway. So she was just let go to go straight home and do whatever it is that she was doing. And she would always tell me, like, she sent me, I think at one point, someone had ordered me to go to a psychologist. And she told me, you can't tell him anything. You can't tell him anything. So I went there and I couldn't say anything, you know. So that was completely, you know, not helpful at all because I just was, I had to go to these appointments, but I couldn't tell them what was going on. So I grew up in Japan and the sexual abuse happened, like, again, like in 80s that nobody talked about and there was no mental health talk, no I didn't learn the word PTSD until I was like in America, like 21. So just to relate with you, however, you were in Norway and I was in Japan and then we were experiencing the similar things that um, I definitely do have trouble, like, you know, sleeping, um, especially when I get triggered and then, um, and I have like a PTSD I remember like one time Starbucks boss yelled at me and it, this is way before I started counseling and I didn't know what was going on. And I couldn't sleep like a week because not only his yelling, like seeing kept going in my head, but also it triggered of me getting extremely abused from my dad. And then all the flashbacks came. And then I remember like during the sleep that I would like, scream and then shriek on top of my lungs during my sleep that um my dad was sexually abusing me and it just and then that abuse happened at nighttime for my case so a lot of times i just scared i'm just scared like what's gonna happen there's nobody but say like, you know, even if you are, like, in the nicest place, like, you know, this is inside of your brain. And then now I know what happens is um, the limbic part of the brain fires up where it stores the trauma and it shuts down the cognitive part of the brain. But I had no idea what was going on with me for many years until I did EMDR. And then my counselor showed me this split model of the brain. And then she explained to me where it's, like, you know, what's going on inside. And until this um, education and then um, logics, we have no idea. So you mentioned about trouble sleeping. Yeah. Um, what else, like, physically affected you? 
I became a binge overeater because that was the only thing that gave me comfort was food. So I would always eat, 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 eat because that was like my, my safety. That was my, you know, my comfort. So that was a big problem. Eventually I lost over 80 pounds and, and started to get back into shape, but that was why, because it made me feel good eating. It still makes me happy, you know, but it's, it was a one thing I could do to care for myself. So when did it start overeating from? I would say maybe 13 or 14 years old. I think that, yeah, I think probably around then is because I just, things just got worse, you know, over time and just as things got worse, especially after that first suicide attempt, I think that's when I really turned more to food. I was also a binge exerciser. So I would, I would binge eat. And then the next day I would binge, I would run and run and run and run and go to the gym at 530 in the morning. And then I would overeat another day, you know, it was, so it was always, so I was slender at that time before I gained all my weight later because binge eating and then binge exercising back and forth, back and forth. But that was the only, sometimes we do that because it's the only control we have in our environment, what we eat or don't eat. And so that was my way of controlling something in my life and giving myself comfort. Wow. And again, like, you know, these things that, especially if your caretaker is, you know, having you a problem and then she or he maybe they don't notice what's wrong with you and then they are the one who's adding and you are minor, it's just extremely difficult to even recognize what's going on and then either you're wrong or right and then also like your health, how it's affecting you. It's just really crazy situation and a lot of people say especially like sexual abuse too like a lot of people i don't know uh specific statistics but i would say like 70 75 percent i learned that the perpetrator for the child sex abuse or abuse are family members or people that you trust people you have known and so that's sad so it's not a stranger like very yeah. few percentage of stranger for child sex abuse but um, I, I really feel that is extra problem because your perpetrator lives with you and then they are not there to protect you. How therefore you have no like getaway. You have no way to escape from the situation unless you like you moved yourself from the situation. I removed myself at age 13. Mm. And I ran from my dad. So it it's just so sad like when i look back that the people who's supposed to protect you like your case is your mom um is not was not available and putting all these things to you or to me as well yeah i mean it does happen as you've talked about with other people too it, it's probably more often than we think sometimes Yes, absolutely. Well, Helen, thank you so much for being so brave and open um, for sharing your adversity. Now let's move on to my second question, which is the tools that you use to overcome these challenges that you faced uh, during the childhood. Um, so before we ask your answer, I just want to share that this is episode 28. And when I started it, I had no idea how this show is going to go. But more and more, I interview people from all over the world in different places, 
places from America, that I realized that these tools are very powerful and then unique and helpful. And then I actually, uh, for instance, I had my guest Kelly Edwards told me about the Rage Room in New Jersey, where you pay and then break everything, like you know any breakable, and then you just get the PPE and then just break. So I found something similar in Massachusetts, and then I'm actually book going and I'm, I booked the session. So there are so many, so many modalities that people talk about, but coming from some you know people who actually went through the adversity and actually use the tools and that if you can share that it's very powerful so what was the tools that you used that helped you the most to come out from to the other side i'm not sure i had that many specific tools i was always interested in psychology and i i went to counseling a little bit but it didn't seem to help as much because i would like tell people about my life and they'd be like they would just like be sitting there and it was like, okay, well, this is awkward. <laughs> you know, you're like, you're supposed to help me not look let me like I'm a freak. So what I did is I read a lot of self-help books and I thought about my situation. I learned as much about the human mind. I learned, I read books about, you know, overcoming trauma. I read books about, you know, abnormal psychology to a point where I could learn like, okay, this has happened to other people. And knowing that it happened to other people was really helpful to me because then I didn't feel like isolated and I didn't feel, you know, as, you know, as alone. And I just slowly started to work through some issues. I made friends who, I didn't really share a lot with them, but I just made friends who made me feel safe because I think that's important that we have friends that we feel safe with. And then I married into a really amazing family. Mm -hmm. So, um, Though they were just, they really welcomed me into a family and I could see how, you know, another family was and like a real family dynamic. And that really helped me just being a part of something that was healthier. I mean, no family is like super healthy, but being in a healthier environment, that really helped me. And later on, after I lost weight or, and I started teaching spin classes, that actually, it sounds strange, but that really helped me a lot because it gave, gave me confidence. And it gave me, it made me realize, you know, you don't suck. You're not stupid. You, you can do this. People come to your class and they like you. And that built an amazing amount of confidence in myself and really helped me, you know, overcome. I think when we, when we do something that's scary and we master it, I think that really helps us heal any wounds from the past when you do something different, you know, like you're doing the show. I mean, I'm sure that was scary when you first started it. But as you're doing it, you probably are even healing even now. Yes, absolutely. So Helen, just to echo you, um, you know, comfort zone and then breaking out of the comfort zone. So today, uh, before our show, I did a, a sparring tournament and I've been taking karate class since August. And today was my absolute first time doing the sparring tournament and I've never done it. And it was such adrenaline, it was scary and, you know, very, very uncomfortable. But like you said, sometimes those uncomfortable experiences, pushing your boundary and trying new things can definitely heal. Because before, the, before karate, I was still really having a mental doubt and then, you know, low confidence. But after studying to do karate and then 
you know, movement and all that stuff that I'm starting to feel more grounded. And especially like after this sparring tournament, I'm like, oh my God, I don't know why I did that. I can't believe I just did that. But then it, it gives you a different sets of layers of confidence. Exactly. That's, that's great that you did that. That's a perfect example because doing something like that, the strength inside, what it gives you, and not just confidence, it's hard to explain. It gives you your power back when you do something. And when you conquer fears over and over again, head on, you get so much stronger and you realize that nothing can really hurt you, that you, that you can't, you can conquer this. You can conquer what happened to you in the past. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a medal I received today. Oh, <laughs> congratulations. Thank you so much. I came in the fourth place in four people tournaments. So. <laughs> but you did it. You did, didn't matter. You did it. I tried. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Have you tried um, maybe any, so spin, you said spin class. Um, do you find that physical exercise helps your trauma and then um, this adversity. Yeah. When I, I was teaching spin, which was really good. And then sometimes here I have a spin bike so I can just put on my favorite music and I can just, it's almost like meditation. It's almost like meditation on the bike because your body's moving, you're sweating, you're breathing, but you just feel like this power and the freedom and just at being like at one with the, with everything. It's amazing how that can really help free you and walking walking is that's one of the reasons why i started the walking podcast is to get people moving because when you walk you also start to think about things and you can resolve your issues when you're moving your body and that's what i just found so magical you know it's just just movement really can help heal you in so many ways and i know that like walking or running makes completely different chemicals um it produces chemical in your brain and that is very different. I saw so I was a truck runner when I was like really young, like 13, 14. So last year, September, I did 5k and I, I've never done race until like, for like 30 years. And I just decided to just run. And then I finished in 28 minutes. So it wasn't oh, that that's bad. Good. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Thank you. Thank you. So then I, um, the, one that was it, the one that one and done. <laughs> so during this 5k i remember like i was running every day when i was growing up but then this one is um really like gave me so many thoughts and then kind of fear but then after i finished the 5k i felt really good and i also did 5k spartan race um at the family park with 22 obstacles and that gave me another confidence so i would say people who especially went through trauma and adversity because you are so violated yeah. and then you're so small and your confidence just goes, you know, it just really bad. And then I would say those things are very tangible, the physical yeah. exercise, you sweat and then you get like, you know, you push your boundary and mm -hmm. then I find it, it's very helpful. And also you get stronger physically. And knowing that you can handle yourself and protect yourself. That's true. One of the guests said, adding that to my bucket list. <laughs> do something different. Yes. So do you have any other suggestion in terms of tools that you think you think it was helpful to you? 
Let me think. Um, well, I think that most people would benefit from going to therapy, but they have to find the right therapist because I, I think that it's just, it's important to find someone who's going to not wallow too much in the past um, and where you can actually, okay, this is what happened, but this is what I do now. And that's like when you can get into groups too with people, like even Facebook groups where you can connect with people and talk about things, not in a negative way, not like, whoa, woe is us, you know, we're victims, but how to move forward. And you can get tools from people, how to, how to move forward from different people and get input from people. I haven't like, I haven't done a rage room thing, but I could certainly see that the rage room would be a great idea. And I would probably like that, <laughs> you know, that was a great one. If you lived close, we will go together. That would be so fun. And we can that smash everything. <laughs> yeah, so I've seen the video. It's crazy. And then they have a shield to protect your phone so people can oh, take away. Yeah. That's so cool. I would love I'll, that. I would definitely post it on Facebook when, when we yeah. do it. Yeah. Yes, definitely. So the Facebook group, I'm a single mom. So I belong to Single Mom Tribe, which is a private group. And then about 800 of us, but it's all over, from all over. And that's been very helpful because this is a specific group that, um, you know, it's not just venting, but the information as well. Yeah. So do you do you belong to any private group or Facebook or something? I belong to different groups, um, like a walking uh, group and then um, like Noom group. I follow the people like a Noom, the Noom weight loss. I follow them because... I like to give advice and solicited advice. Now, when people ask for advice, I like to help people. So it's a great way for me because I, I eventually became a personal trainer part-time in addition to running my digital marketing agency. So I have a love for helping people and just, I have the answers. So I like to like to share that with them. And I belong to a lot of organ like groups for my business, like podcasting groups and things like that. But I was a single mom too. I still am, but my kids are grown up now. So, so I know what that's like. It's, it's an incredible struggle to try to try to uh, raise kids on your own. There's no break. No, <laughs> no break. Yeah. So now they're that's grown. It. Yeah. Well, I'm sure um, your children appreciate you. Yeah, they do. They're really, really good kids. I'm so lucky because I just, and I overcompensated as a parent. I did too much. I spoiled them too much. I mean, I work for myself. So I was always, I'd always make sure I were, I would volunteer in school and take them to all their events. And then I would stay up all night working to get it done. But it was really important to me to give them what I never had. I had no idea what it'd be like to have a mother at home bake pumpkin pie when I came home from school. You know, I did that to my son. He still remembers it. Like you sometimes used to bake us pumpkin pie, you know, so they would come home and there'd be something nice for them. I did everything that I thought that a good mom should do, you know, an overboard, I'm sure. <laughs> but at the same time, though, Helen, of all the efforts that you have done to your children, now they can carry on to their children. Yeah. And I'm sure that they remember this pumpkin pie and all the memories and effort that you put in. I would say investing in your children alongside of investing in yourself, which is very difficult for people who survive this trauma. I think that's really, really um, ROI, the highest ROI, return of investment. I think that's the yeah. highest ROI. Now, um, did you have... Just, just a, a question. Did you have any difficult time for, uh, in terms of a relationship with other people 
or even with yourself? Um, I was well, I was married or together with my ex-husband for about 20 years. And I was very also conscientious. I didn't want to sleep around. So I haven't been with that many people because I, wa I always strive to be the opposite of my mother. So, which is may or may not be healthy. I don't know. But so I just was very careful. But I have a hard time forming connections with, especially men, I think I have a hard time forming connections with them because I don't trust them because most of the time they're going to do something, you know, like not like that, but you know, something is going to happen and always happens. And so immediately, as soon as I feel someone's like either putting me down or they're, they're in some ways, like my most recent relationship was like, you know, he kept trying to insinuate that he was so much better than me, like little, like subtle ways. And I'm like, no, can't, I just can't, I can't deal with that. And I can't, I can't confront anybody. I'm terrible with confrontations. Um, when people want to talk about their feelings, I'm not like, okay, let's, let's not, <laughs> you know, so that those are things that I struggle with, but I'm happily single. I have no intention of ever getting a relationship again because I'm busy and I have my kids and cats and I'm happy, but I think it did. Um, it did, obviously it affected me with relationships. I have good friendships. I'm lucky. I have a couple of friends in Norway I've known since I was what, 13, 14 years old. And we still keep in touch. I see them when I go back. So I'm I'm really lucky with friends. I've had friends here that I've known. And yeah, I'm, I'm lucky with that. Well, thank you so much for sharing. Do you have any tools for relationship that maybe worked in terms of the boundary or, or anything? I don't think I have much to offer there <laughs> because I'm not good with relationships. I don't understand boundaries. I give and give and give and give and give until I have no more to give. And so that is my problem that I should work on. Um, but I just, I, I think that, I think that when someone starts a relationship, they should do less uh, uh, because if you do a lot, you're going to continue to do a lot and you're going to be, it's going to be expected of you. And that's why I make a lot of mistakes is I go 110%. I got to give everything I have, make sure they're really happy. doesn't matter if I'm not happy as long as they're happy. So obviously that is not a healthy way to be in a relationship. I 100% agree with you. I give and give and give and just break. And then mm -hmm. I've done it so many times in my relationships and it sucks. It just really happens. <laughs> But at the same time, to recognize that and then not having a relationship is one of the biggest things. I remember my doctor was saying, Julie, it's okay to be single. It's okay to have your personal space. Where in Japan, like, no, we were expected to be married and then have devotion to men. And then we were trained to be submissive and then not talk back and then just be very, um, you know, great wife or girlfriend or whatever so that's been very struggle to me as well not just you know the abusive history that people sometimes label me as daddy issue or whatever and so i think not learning a healthy relationship when you are like you know young that yeah. definitely affects long long term effect yeah it and does for sure yeah but anyway so let's actually move on to the last question which is a gift that came from all this adversity so what would you say the gift that came from it i would say empathy 
because I I wouldn't trade anything for the of my life because I learned empathy. I can understand. I can talk to people. People feel like they can talk to me. I'm never going to judge them because I've probably been through it already. I I am so grateful for the empathy, and it really helps me, you know, help other people and understand other people. And that is the, um, I think that that's the best gift is just being an empathetic human being who helps other people and and still likes humanity mostly, <laughs> not all the time. Can you tell um, some example of you being empathetic and then have somebody said that to you, some nice things? Well, when, um, you know, when friends or family or even clients, when I've had training clients and things in the past, when they feel like they can come to me and they can talk to me and I'm not going to judge them, I'm not going to mostly tell them what to do. And just, you know, they appreciate the fact that I listen with an open mind. I never judge them. If they want advice, I'll give them advice. And just this, for them to have someone to come to, you know, they've told me that, like, I just, I like that I can talk to you, you know, thank you for listening and for helping me. And I didn't think about it that way. Sometimes it's nice too to have someone else who sees your situation a little differently and maybe sees the reasoning for for a behavior or something. And so when when people ask me, you know, like, and this is what's happening. And what do you think? Or, you know, I just, just being able, just listening to someone and no matter what they say, I'm not going to be shocked and disgusted. I'm just going to listen to them and make them feel heard and make them feel like they have some value. And that's, I think that's where the empathy comes in. It's like, you know, when people need, or when people need help, you know, I feel for them and I will try to help people. All I will go too far to help people again, because that's who I am. But just, you know, being able to to not to realize a lot of people who haven't had any issues in their life, they just they can't relate. They're like, well, like with homeless people, there's a lot of people who say, well, homeless people, you know, just lock them up. No, let's not just lock them up because there's a reason they're homeless. And let's try to figure it out. And let's try to help them. You don't get that empathy if you've never been through anything. You're just like these people are bad. These people are bad. And only my kind is good. I can't stand that. Yes, empathy is something that you can never like teach people. Like by, like say, watching a movie can be empathetic, but experiencing it and listening to other people. Just an example, I had this very profound moment where I. This is before I published my book. Mm -hmm. um, I was invited as a guest speaker, and there about. 30 people in the audience. And I did this exercise of sharing the adversity with the person next to. And there's one man who refused to say his adversity to the partner, the random person in the audience. And after I finished speaking, he decided to tell me. And he said, I don't want to tell her, but I want to tell you. And that's that was a lot, like, no, that meant a lot. And then he was sexually abused by his father along with his five siblings and then two committed suicide. And then everybody became um, drug addict or really bad. And then he, yeah. he was in, I don't know, maybe 50s or 60s. He was holding his tears and then he, he had full of tears in his eyes and he was trying to not cry. 
but I could hear so much rage in him. And, you know, being empathetic is something that, like you said, came from adversity in a way that when you said sexual abuse, like I, my mind just like races in the kind of mild about my experience. So I am sure when people tell you the adversity, that not only you are giving them a space, but you are feeling it yourself. And then in a way, sometimes it's healing to know that you gave you gave a confidence for somebody to be able to share their story. Yeah, it is healing. And when you can help other people or give back to other people in, in those kind of ways, it is, it does heal you because it it just helps you Helping other people is really what life is about. And when you help other people, even if it's just listening, you can change, you can change so much in people's lives. And that's, I think that's what's lacking a lot in this world is listening to other people and just helping them and being there and not judging them. Yeah, we have a saying in Japanese, two years, one month. I mean, listen twice more than you speak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> want to learn something <laughs> but anyways yeah it's it's a beautiful gift unfortunately this adversity happened to both of us and then many people but we are all survivors and then we are all not alone and then especially in 2022 now after the pandemic a lot of people went through depression isolation and then a lot of people are talking about mental health openly talking about depression, talking about isolation. And I feel more and more safe to talk about mental health and talk about adversity and not being judged or worrying about losing a job. And I think that is really important. And that's part of the reason why I wanted to start this podcast as well. Yeah. No, it's true. And it is accepted more. But when you say something, people were like, oh, okay, well, I'm not the only one. And then they feel like they can talk to you. Just letting people know they're not the only one. And, you know, I'll say things sometimes about my life or say something because I want people to know that they can, they can come talk to me. I've been through stuff. You don't want to talk to people who've never been through anything, you know, because they, they can't relate. Yes, absolutely. Well, Helen, it's been a pleasure getting to know you and I absolutely appreciate it that you had shared your adversity which was not easy but I completely um empathize with you and then um, you know I really think that all of us who went through difficulties and challenges that we should never feel ashamed and we should never feel embarrassed and then we should always feel that something that was hard gave you a perspective to evolve and yeah. accomplish something together right yep exactly yep the more people we can help the better the more people we can you know just make feel not alone the better yeah absolutely so do you have a last word for our audience before you go 
believe in yourself and do one thing, one little thing, because everybody's busy and, and with lives and work and kids, do one little thing for yourself that you've always wanted to do or that you stop doing. Find one thing that gives you that spark back because a lot of times we lose the spark that we had if we're sometimes way, way long ago. But do something that gives you a little bit of joy and feeling of accomplishment. People, somebody may want to be an artist and they could just start painting. Take a class online at home if you can't leave. Just life is so short and you do something that gives you some, you know, feeling of comfort and just makes you feel good and go outside your comfort zone when you can, because that's, that's life changing. Absolutely. Just like me doing the sparring tournament at age yes. with these kids. Oh my goodness. And then uh, I'm actually doing horse riding lesson on Monday. So I'm very excited about that. See, so, you're doing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, thank you so much again, Helen, for coming in um, tonight and then being on a gift from adversity episode 28. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you. Absolutely. And thank you to our audience for listening to another episode of Gift a Gift from Adversity. And we have more guests coming in for April and then March, April, and May. I'm very excited to host. So see you next time. Have a great night.